Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. This week, I'm talking with Adam Taylor, president of APM Music. APM is the world's leading creative music house and production music library. With placements in network TV, Netflix, and Disney+, Plus, to tons of blockbuster films, it's no wonder APM is at the forefront of the sync and music production library world. Crazy thing about Adam, he has no musical bone in his body. Yet, he runs the largest music production library in the world. We're discussing how someone with no musical background can become the leader of a music-related company, the key to the music library business, and what APM looks for when hiring new staff members. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Taylor. Hey guys, I am talking with Adam Taylor, who is the president of APM Music. Hey Adam, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be on here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for being on my show. I'm so, so excited to to finally get to talk to you. I know we've been working for a couple of weeks trying to get this put together, and um, so I'm, I'm grateful. And you're in, you're in LA, and uh, I'm in Nashville, so at the time of recording, it's like early in the morning <laughs> for you to do this. So. Yeah, it's not that early. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking. And I've been wanting to um, connect with APM Music for a while. So when I reached out and you actually responded to my email, I was surprised it was such a quick response and, and grateful that, you know, the president of a huge, you know, production library and, um, you know, and Music House would be willing to to take time out so easily to do that. So I know you got a lot going on. So not a problem at all. So um, tell us, you know, who you are, where you're from, how you grew up, what kind of got you into the music business and uh, leading you down this path to APM. Oh, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. So uh, <laughs> where to start? Well, I am from New York. I was born in Manhattan and uh, my, uh, first few years were relatively uneventful, uh, but my parents did move up to the suburbs north of New York City in a town called Mamaroneck and uh, in Westchester County, and I grew up there. I was there, uh, had a great uh, fun childhood, nothing to do with the music business. My father was in the cosmetics uh, and pharmaceutical industry, and okay. uh, so uh, just uh, did my thing as a kid. And Went to uh, college in Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, did a major in physics at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and a minor in philosophy at Clark University, and uh, then went back to New York and wanted to uh, really, uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I went to work for my father. My father uh, owned a company called Caswell Massey. And Council Massey was founded in, in 1752. It's the oldest chemists and perfumers in the United States. The wow. company still makes the colognes it used to make for George Washington and Marquis de Lafayette and Dolly Madison and other people. It has a long, long and storied history. Uh, That's it also super imports, cool. Yeah, it's a great company. And it also imports products from all over the world, uh, all personal care kinds of uh, products, shampoos, lotions, colognes, potpourri, all kinds of oddities and things. And so... Uh, and my parents, my my father and my my uncle started working for the Caswells in 1916, and my father and he bought the business in 1936. So I went into it after college years ago, and ended up uh, there for 17 years, and uh, vowed never to stay somewhere that long again. And now I've been at APM 
running it for 21 years. So there you go. <laughs> Not so good at predicting the future. So, okay. So you didn't grow up doing music and that's, um, that's interesting. I think you're probably the first guest that I've had on, um, that doesn't have a background in music to some really, to some degree, I would, I would guess. So, um, I'm curious as what led you from working in, in cosmetics and perfume to moving into music. I'm sure there's a whole sto- you know story in between those two things. Um, sure. So what kind of, what led you over to the direction of music? So I, I was always passionate about music. Um, I mean, I, I'm an amateur uh, when it comes to playing music and uh, people ask me if I, uh, write for our library and I say uh, jokingly that I'm only good to put in our competitors and uh, the uh, they also ask me if I write music and I say uh, no if I wrote two notes one of them would be wrong so right. uh, <laughs> I um, uh, didn't grow up with that and my parents weren't into it but I always loved pop music and I loved rock music later on and uh, in college and things and so very passionate about it and uh uh, in college, my fraternity ran the uh, the concerts for the uh, school, and so I, I got to meet some interesting people along the way. And uh, uh, when there were concerts at uh, at our school, I, I remember meeting James Taylor and, and spending time with him and Alice Cooper and a few other people. And it was like, you know, as a kid in college, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I still did not. Uh, get into the music business. I went to work for my, my father's company. And uh, uh, in that uh, company, there were um, a lot of really interesting people who came into the store. And um, so I would, uh, anytime anybody interesting would come in, I would try to wait on them and spend time with them. And I got to meet a lot of really interesting people, met some people who were managers in the business and uh, ended up spending a lot of time at that time while I was working at the family business, both first in the store and then in the offices for years, and then eventually became the president of the company. Um, spent a lot of time, uh, my, my, my free time uh, in the music area with a lot of music people. So I got to meet a lot of really interesting people. And uh, so uh, people at my company were always asking me to tell the stories. <laughs> I should write them down at some point. But like, I yeah, if I should write a book. With, yeah, uh, if I had the time. But uh, I spent a lot of time with Kiss and Led Zeppelin and other people. And uh, so it was, you know, it was fortunate to be able to have that experience. And um, I came to, I was never in the music business though. And um, I came to APM because a, uh, I was, I had gone down to Florida with my family to run a public company down there for a few years. And I was feeling like I wanted to get back to um, New York or LA and because I had been living in Los Angeles. And so okay. happily a friend of ours was visiting in Florida who uh, was in the music business, somebody I'd known for a long, long time. And I told him I was looking for something new. And he said that, uh, well, there's this uh, company we own part of, and uh, we've been looking for somebody new to run it for a while, and maybe you'd be interested. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, in uh, June of 2001, I uh, I came to APM uh, to run it. I moved back from Florida to Los Angeles, and uh, kind of the rest is history. It's been great. Life-changing, okay. really. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have to ask then, for someone who doesn't have a background in music, um, you know, what makes somebody say, we want to hire you to lead a music company who doesn't have a background in music. And I mean, obviously you've got a business background, obviously. Um, but is that, is that all they, they needed was because you're looking at it from a business aspect of it, as opposed to a music, a music business aspect. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And uh, I should say there was one uh, thing that I skipped over um, by accident, which is that I did spend a number of years uh, producing uh, programming. So I had gotten into the entertainment business, uh, had a partnership with a friend of mine who was a a producer, and we ended up producing a TV movie and uh, primetime TV series and some documentaries and it gave me an understanding of the entertainment business. And okay. so that was very, very um, helpful. But I think that 
when I was considering whether or not I wanted to do this and whether or not I could do it, because I only wanted to come into it if I felt I could do um, a good job, you know, because after all, they, they weren't saying, well, you know, come in at a low level and work your way up. They're saying, right. come in and be the president and CEO of the company. You know? right. So I had to really make sure I felt that I knew I could do it. And in, I did a lot of research and a lot of thinking. And um, my background, even though, you know, I was in cosmetics and then I was in entertainment with the TV programming stuff. Um, really what it was is uh, it's in the, it's the exploitation of intellectual property. Okay. So at my company, Founded in 1752, we had all kinds of formulas and stories and things. And really the way that we marketed ourselves was we told our stories. So the, the Caswell Massey story emerged out of the stories that we told and the history of the company. And so managing intellectual property, figuring out what is going to motivate somebody to buy, um, was very similar to what I was doing in entertainment. Uh, I also had another kind of era where I was taking uh, scientific inventions that scientists and doctors were had invented that had potential as consumer products, and I was turning them into consumer products, uh, again, taking their intellectual property and figuring out what to do with them. And we were selling in stores and on Home Shopping Network and QVC, and we did in, in infomercials and things. And so it uh, all of that kind of had a, th a theme, a thread, which was how do you exploit intellectual property? And so when I came to be considering APM, uh, it really was the same thing for me. So this is intellectual property. <clears throat> how do you market intellectual property? Um, and I already knew how to run a company at Castle Massey. We had uh, about 300 employees and not a large company, but not small. And uh, APM, we have about 85 people. So um, the skill sets that I learned previously on the job uh, in my former occupations really helped me to uh, to do what I do now. Okay. Well, that's really cool. And I think that's super encouraging for a lot of people that are listening because, you know, there, there are so many of us that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, that listen to the show that, you know, we do have a, a music background. That's, that's how we grew up. And so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of musicians don't have the business aspect they don't have the brain to do kind of do that business side of they all it's all creative right <laughs> or it's kind of it's kind of one or the other a lot of people don't have both necessarily um so but i think it's encouraging for people to hear that are not necessarily musically inclined but love music and want to work in the music business to some to some level some degree um and you have shown just by that little bit of conversation that someone who does not have a musical background can run a huge music company, <laughs> you know? So that's a really encouraging thing. I think for a lot of people to, to hear that um, they're like, there is hope for me. There's something that I, I can do and I can be a part of this industry, even though I don't have a musical bone in my body necessarily. Well, I think that is true. I think that it, it, it helps to have a passion for music, you know, sure. it's, uh, yeah. you know, you should have a passion for, whatever you do. And, uh, the, uh, like Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, you know, um, try to find something that's going to help give your life meaning because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. Right. So I think that's very, very important. And uh, a lot of people obviously do have passion for the music business and really want to be in it and don't necessarily know what role they can play. So, I think, uh, like you mentioned, uh, you know, there, there's kind of, you know, two sides to the brain or two types of brains or whatever, you know, there's the business side, the, the music side, I have the business side, but not the music side in, right. in the sense of being able to write or play. And uh, so um, the, uh, but I do tell people uh, that there are two words in the phrase music business. So, uh, you know, both of them are really equally as important. And um, to the extent that somebody who is on the music side can uh, either nurture uh, some understanding of the business side yep. or partner with somebody who has that skill, I think it's a really important thing. It's like filmmakers or writers partner with producers. 
because yeah, we're really oftentimes different skill sets and not everybody has both. Right. So I think that finding the right people to work with, understanding that if you're a musician, a composer, songwriter, lyricist, um, and you don't want to spend time too much on the business side, then partner up with somebody. I think that's worthwhile. If you are on the business side, um, then you know, what is it that you want to do? And uh, there are many different aspects. There are things where you're actually working with artists on the creative side. There is certainly A&R, artist and repertoire, where you're going out and trying to identify uh, artists who are good and worth pursuing and working with. And then there are oftentimes in companies, you know, very nuts and bolts kind of work that uh, on its surface can be um, routine or by rote or boring and you know, data oriented and things. But um, I think that in most companies, certainly the ones that, uh, that have um, an eye towards growth, look to see what more can they do with their employees and with their staff. And they want people who are going to think out of the box, who are going to go beyond the norm and go beyond the job description and we have many, many people in our company who started off as receptionists, and uh, we call them front desk uh, assistant or something, I forget exactly, but because they're not just, you know, there's not somebody walking in to the door every single second or calling every second on the phone, and they have a lot of other things that we give them to do. And um, uh, but they started that way and uh, have reached uh, very good, important levels within the organization, even heading up departments. So um, I think that, uh, you know, find opportunities, find companies where you like the people, you're interested in what they're doing. If they're in a particular aspect of music, then they you like that kind of music. That's great. And uh uh, you know, my both of my children are two boys. They're 26 and 24. They're DJs and uh, electronic music writers, and uh, one of them works at an electronic music company because he likes that kind of music. So um, that you know, tie into what you are going to have fun doing. Right. Well, uh, thank you for for sharing that. I appreciate that. Um, so so APM has been around for over 35 years. Um, it's considered the world's leading creative music house and production music library. Um, when I was looking on the website and just kind of getting some information uh, early on, I saw that you've got over you know 160 different libraries, at least over 885,000 tracks within your your platform for uh, for productions to get music from you guys to to use in their you know in their different types of productions, and so between TV and internet and movies and online content and social media, whatever, all that kind of stuff, you guys provide music for all of those different things. So when I see 885,000 tracks, that's like, it's an overwhelming number. You no, know, we're actually over a million by, at this time. Well, at this time. So I think we have to change you, the, you uh, probably need to update the website. website. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you for that. I'll make a note. <laughs> sure. So, okay. So then even that's even more staggering over a million, you know, tracks. Huh? So, um, as a writer, cause I, I'm an artist and a writer and I write production music and I do, you know, I live in that world. Mm-hmm. And so for people listening that do, that are like me and who do this, you know, on that side of things and work with companies like yours. And we, you know, we send, send a company music, a library music and get it put in. It's like, it feels like just on the surface that it can get just lost because there's over a million (laughs) tracks. So how do you, how do you encourage people that you work with artists that you work with and producers and writers that, you know, hey, if you're going to give, you're going to send music to us and we're going to put it in our library, you know, f- that we're, there's potential for it to land somewhere because there, it's in a sea of a million plus songs. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And so, and to clarify, we have about um, 310,000 original compositions 
And then, of course, in the library business, you need multiple versions. You need cutdowns and underscore and stings and links, right. and links and things like that. And so, uh, with all of the versions, it totals over a million. But there are uh, about three hundred and ten or so thousand original compositions. Now, that still is a staggering amount. Sure. Um, and but the mission of APM is uh, different than a lot of other libraries, and certainly than the, the niche libraries and even some of the larger libraries. Um, our mission is to be able to <clears throat> satisfy every client need. So uh, if you have every musical need, if you come in and you are looking for a particular type of music, then our mission is to make sure that we have it. So whether you want a Gregorian chant or you want something in the latest uh, uh, hip hop or you want something that is inspired by uh, uh, Lizzie, Lizza or Dua Lipa or somebody, um, you know, we have that. And uh, that's very important for us. And also, uh, you know, we're a large library in terms of the, um, the number of clients that we have. So the, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of clients and tens of thousands, if not, you know, hundreds, uh, over a hundred thousand, perhaps people using our music on a regular basis. And so um, you never know what somebody wants. And so we're continually asking, uh, we're continually releasing new music into the library. There's a lot going on all the time because there are new things that come up. People burn through some of the older stuff. On the other hand, people want archival music uh, that we have. And, um, so we get a lot of activity in our music. And so you never know what somebody's going to want. And our mission is to have the music. So does something get lost? I mean, only in the sense that it is one of you know, many albums uh, or one of many tracks. But at the same time, we have many, many people coming. And the idea is to try to understand what people are looking for. Uh, that's our job. And also a songwriter or composer who wants to work in the library business should listen should go to the sites of the popular libraries and uh see what's current what are the new releases what people what are people doing right now and to get a sense of how you as an artist might be able to contribute to that because we're going to be looking for um music that is um of a particular in a particular genre of a particular style <clears throat> however we want songwriters and composers who have their own style, who have their own voice. There are many ways to do a, a piece of trailer music or promo music or underscore or write something in the style of Miles Davis or Taylor Swift, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so everybody is going to do something different. So I think you have to develop your skills make sure you have a sense of confidence about what you're doing and that you have your own voice rather than trying to imitate other people and then your music will get found and it will get used thank you that's great uh so because you're such a large company and i know you guys have music in lots of different uh, you know blockbuster movies i know that top gun maverick you got music in in that movie which is you know considered one of the biggest movies ever you know, so congratulations for getting to be a part of that. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, Thank you. As well as the new version of Dune. You guys have music in that as well, which was an amazing movie. And we, my family watched that recently, actually, and thought like the, that the music and sound design and everything. I know that sound design is sort of a different thing, but the music that was in it was so unique, so, so cool. And so that you guys get to be a part of that um, was is really special, I think, to to kind of have a, you know, a, a foothold in that, in that world. And yeah, it's great, uh, great to be a part of it. Of course, you know, much of the, um, the work in the, in top movies like that is, um, uh, done by, uh, you know, by the composers. Right. And, yeah. Uh, in that case, Hans Zimmer. Sure. But, uh, we, uh, are very proud to be a part of it. And, you know, our music is music for storytelling. Yeah. <clears throat> and if the music helps to tell the story, then we're happy. Sure. So, um, for people, for artists and writers that want to, to get in to work with APM or, or any other library, but specifically for you guys with, with our conversation, um, what is it that you're looking for specifically in bringing in new, new writers and producers and artists and, um, and how often 
are you looking to bring people in? Do you just, you know, does someone just send you, uh, you know, a submission on the website and say, you know, do you guys have that on the website? Or if someone emails you says, Hey, you know, I'm an artist, writer, producer, I want to write music for APM. Do you just say, Hey, send us some, some tracks. Let's, let's hear it. Or do you, you know, I know a lot of libraries only do take submissions for a certain periods of time, like maybe each year, you know, it's a very Mm -hmm. limited kind of a thing. How do you guys typically do that? And what are you looking for? Sure. So first, uh, it'll help if I give a a two-minute history of APM, because the structure of APM is different than most other libraries. Okay. So uh, we were founded in 1983 by EMI and ATV, which soon became Zamba. Uh, Their interest in the library world was bought out by Zamba. So for a long time, we were owned by EMI and Zamba. Zamba at that time was the largest independent music company in the world, and they had... uh, Backstreet Boys, in sync, Britney Spears, all at the peak of their careers, and many, many others. And uh, Zamba was ultimately bought by the old BMG, which in turn was later bought by Universal Music Publishing. So we are half owned by music, uh, Universal Music Publishing. On the other side, there was EMI, which over the last number of years has been uh, step-by-step absorbed by Sony. And so we are now half owned by Sony Music Publishing and half owned by Universal Music Publishing. Okay. And the reason we were set up in 1983 was to represent libraries that the owner companies owned over in the UK and other territories, um, but primarily the UK. And they, there had been previous representation here by a third party company that they were not happy with, and they decided um, to do it together. You know, the library business was much smaller at that time than it is today in 1983. And, uh, today I think they would for sure set up their own companies rather than doing it together, but they set it up together and that's how APM got founded. We were a joint venture on day one and we remain, and I think we'll probably always remain a joint venture. And, um, so w- with our mission to, is, our mission is to represent, uh, other third-party libraries in the United States and Canada. Those are the only markets that we deal with. So a little bit different than other libraries. And so we don't, for the most part, produce our own music. 99% of the music that we uh, have is produced by the libraries that we represent. And our job is to decide which libraries to represent. And then to work with those libraries to make sure that we're getting the music that we want. It's of the quality that we want and the styles that we want and things. So we work very, very closely with uh, those libraries. We have about 50 different suppliers. Not all of them are looking for new composers, but many of them do. So what we do is we have a uh, a page on our website, which I will email you afterwards because I don't remember the exact URL at the moment, and you can share it on your podcast that people can look at, and it gives uh, an explanation of uh, where and how to submit music to the libraries that are interested in receiving new submissions. Okay. So that's how uh, it works for uh, for us. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, it's a, a different different setup for sure, but that's really good for people to know because you know a lot of a lot of guys like me are always looking for new opportunities and new new people to work with and just trying to expand you know our reach and and how we create music and that kind of thing. So um, you know, any help is is always greatly appreciated for for artists and, and producers and writers. Well, and, and so. You know, from our perspective also, you know, our success is based on the quality of the music that we have. Right. So we wouldn't be in business without songwriters and composers. Right. And, exactly. Uh, lyricists. So sure. uh, it is incumbent upon us to really, um, help. Yeah. And also we, you know, we believe in supporting the community. PM is, a community and we try to foster a community around what we do because we really believe in it. In contrast to some other library companies and structures, our songwriters and composers share in our sync revenue in perpetuity. Um, and so uh, it's very, very important that we get people who are really, really good. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's why APM, I think, stands out in, in some way. Yeah, because we believe in quality, we have a passion for it, and we're very, very artist and you know composer centric. That's great. Um, do you guys have a? I'll say like in a percentage way of. Do you focus more on instrumentals as a as a production library? I feel like that's 
a, a greater number of music is done as instrumental as opposed to lyrical in most libraries. Um, so do you guys kind of focus more on that side of thing or is it pretty even for you, for you or uh, how would you <laughs> think that works for you guys? Well, we, we focus on both, but more of the music that is used in productions um, are without vocals. Right. And so there is more score and underscore and things used that overall than songs. And so um, obviously we have a lot of those and we have a lot more um of that kind of material, then we have songs with lyrics. But having said that, we have tens of thousands of songs with lyrics. Right. And we're always getting them in all the time. We release music on our website every month, and there's always new uh, songs coming in in various styles. And mm -hmm. um, so that's very, very important. And also, we are very indie artist-centric. We really like working with uh, um, we want in music that reflects an indie artist style, and we also want to work with artists who are writing, performing, touring, marketing themselves under their own names, you know, so that they have, um, they have a social media presence, and uh, maybe they tour, they play out, whatever, and so we even have a library dedicated to that that we just started called Kinetic, and it's kind of uh, an artist collective where we that li particular library uh, an artist has to be uh, actually be out there under their own name and a lot of music supervisors in the industry are really looking for what they call authentic artists we know that everybody who is writing is an authentic artist but yeah. the they use that phrase and and what they mean by that is an artist who has a social media presence. You can look them up online. You can follow them. They're on Spotify. You could stream their music. Maybe they tour if it's appropriate. And so that's the kind of uh, that's part of our overall approach to being artist and composer centric. So uh, and at the same time, uh, there can be somebody who doesn't uh, play out under their own name, but just writes an album of indie artist style music that is very, very good. And we, of course, have that as well. That's great. Um, and this is so good. Thank you for all this information. Um, when people are writing music for you, um, do you do you find a greater, I don't say percentage, um, what genres, I mean, let me say it this way, what genres of music do you find are the least asked for, for what you guys do. Does that make sense? You know, sure. I know like, you know, hip hop is huge. Electronic is huge. That kind of thing. You know, I know country is making a comeback in sync music. And for a long time, people didn't want anything to do with country and sync really. Um, but like with Yellowstone and Monarch and different shows like that, you know, there are, there are places for that now. Um, sure. But what do you guys find is like, something that you don't really get a lot of so that people listening are like, okay, I need to, I kind of need to maybe not do that. Who <laughs> think I should do that. Yeah. Um, well, as you mentioned, obviously uh, hip hop is very big rock pop, um, hybrid styles yeah. of, uh, hybrid trailer music or hybrid hip hop of some kind. Um, and, um, music for sports is very big. Um, and then also, you know, the underscore and the score stuff is, is, you know, very popular and very steady. There's, especially on the underscore side, you know, there's a lot of storytelling where they don't want the music to be the focus. You know, they right. want it to just be in the background and to move right. the story along. And so that is, uh, is very, very important. And we are looking at commercials. They often want something that's just, if it, it doesn't have lyrics, then they want something that's just kind of happy and upbeat and, motivating and poppy and uh if it does have lyrics they um they want lyrics that help tell a story of some kind that would relate to potentially to a product it could be about you know taking care of yourself or health or love or romance or friendship or breaking up or mm -hmm. uh you know some kind of thematic uh lyrical structure so the songs that we have are uh, are very, very important. Um, in terms of uh, genres that are not, 
requested as much, I would say, probably jazz. Okay. Um, although people do ask for jazz, and, you know, we have a lot of it, and we do get, you know, continue to get uh, new um, uh, pieces in. And I'm actually, while we're talking, I'm just going to my website, and I'm just going to look at the list of genres and see if uh, uh, I can give you a, something in a little bit more uh, depth. Sure. Um, I would say jazz is probably more more asked for at Christmas time, just because of, you know, Christmas music is basically jazz yeah, music. But we also part. have a lot of Christmas music that's tagged Christmas music. Sure. So yeah, sure. people might, you know, ask for that specifically. I would say, uh, you know, maybe blues and jazz are probably not asked for as much. Country is not uh, asked for as much. Um, <sighs> Doesn't mean don't do it. Right. Just be just be aware that that's not necessarily the bread and butter of what you're right. Playing. It's not going to be the largest thing. Uh, religious yeah. music, marches, military band, um, some of uh, depending on what it is, the kitsch retro stuff, um, traditional dance styles. That's about it, you know. But again, I, I do want to emphasize that uh, you never know when uh, somebody's going to use something. And they're going to ask sure. for something. Yeah. And one of the stories I tell is that uh, we did, uh, I did five albums with Hal David. And for those who don't know, Hal David and Burt Backrack uh, were the writing team of Backrack David and wrote many of the great songs of the second half of the 20th century, including The Look of Love, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, Alfie, What the World Needs Now is Love's Sweet Love, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, the uh, he did five albums for us, and we were having lunch one day, and he said, you know, he had looked at his ASCAP statement the day before, and he was amazed that there was a track that he uh, he had written with his writing partner John Kakavas, uh, who was the closer. Of course, Hal wrote the lyrics that had not really gotten used at all. And uh, on the statement, there was a uh, line item for $25,000 being paid to him for use of the track. And it was either Belgium or Holland. I can't remember which one. Wow. And it, somebody had got, you know, glommed onto it and loved it and used it like a million times in something. And it aired a lot. And uh, he got this enormous check out of something that really had done nothing before. That's crazy. So you know, that doesn't mean to go purposefully at writing a style that nobody's going to be interested in, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, but uh, yeah, that means there's potential for anything. There is, there is, and but yeah. you know, be realistic and know that uh, there are certainly certain styles and genres are going to be more common and more more popular. Yeah. I, so uh, I just want to add one thing also that the more popular the and contemporary the style of what you're offering. It may mean that it has a, a shorter shelf life. Mm. It depends. Um, and there's so many factors involved in that. You know, uh, we, uh, we have a very, very large and important collection of archival library music. And uh, one of our library, one of our founding libraries, KPM, which is owned by Sony now, <clears throat> was founded in the 1940s through the merger of two other music companies and uh, small kind of libraries. And it became the preeminent library in the world. And uh, it really defined the sound of British television for something close to 25 years. And much of that came over here um, and was licensed by the predecessor to APM. So uh, we still get performance revenues every quarter from ASCAP and BMI for the music in um, Superman, the black and white George Reeves Superman. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And because it was produced, I believe, from 1956 to 1960, and the music from 1957 to 1960 was all KPM for the most part. Okay. Um, the Spider-Man cartoon series from in 1969, yeah. other than the theme, we had hundreds and hundreds of songs, tracks in those uh, yeah, that I we still that. get uh, payment for. Those were from KPM and from JW Media, another very important archival library. So um, you never know. Uh, some of the things may never go out of style. And a lot of those things continue to get used today. Yeah. Some of our most popular songs are quite old. That Spider-Man, the 67, Spider-Man 67 year, those two or three years they put that cartoon out that's still the best spider-man i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> of all well, the animated 
all the I animated theme, ones. You know, Spider Man, Spider Man. Yeah, but just the car, just the show itself is still, I think, you know, yeah. still one of the best. But I agree. Um, so that's super cool that you guys are connected with that and with the Superman show. That's really neat. Um, I was going to tell you, you mentioned uh, what the world needs now is love and um, having a connection to that. So I pro- wrote or I, I produced um, a version, a cover version of that with a friend of mine. Um, huh. send, back- send, it, send it along. We also I will. offer covers. <laughs> uh, I will I will do it. Yeah, it's, it, but we just you, you said that and it popped in my head. It's like, oh, man, yeah, I did a cover for that because I was I did some covers for Universal Music Publishing. Uh, back during lockdown in 2020 and um they had uh, i got connected with somebody there and she uh i said do you guys ever take covers and she's like she immediately emailed back with a whole list of like actually we need covers of all of these songs and i was like oh wow okay so you know i kind of that never happens to me so i got you know kind of got a foot in the door there and started creating all these covers um so that's it was exciting to be a part of, you know, kind of be a part of that and do some things there. So, yeah, I think that, you know, if you listen to what's happening in uh, like trailer music today and mm-hmm. to some degree in commercials, there is yep. a uh, growth in the use of reimagined covers. These are not exactly. covers that are forensically right. exactly like the original. Yep. These are really reimagined. Right. And Which is what people this is. are looking, looking yeah. for those. Yeah. And so. And we, yeah, I've always told people on the show, we've talked about, about that before is that, you know, when people are asking, like you guys are asking for covers, it's usually, they want like an opposite version of what the original is. If it's upbeat mm-hmm. and happy and original, they want like a dark haunting version, you know, instead. So that's kind of more what this is. Um, but, so, but anyway, you said, you mentioned that and that was a, a cool. Yeah. Cool look, songs can so. be done in, in, in any kind of style. Um, just do you guys to, get a lot of, do y'all get a lot of, um, a lot of asks for for covers is that a big yes, thing for you do. guys do you yeah and they're not on our website uh our regular website we have a separate one called covers at covers.apmmusic.com so that we don't separate the two you know we don't mix the two because we don't have the publishing rights for the covers yeah obviously you're just getting the master right, uh, right to the cover you would have to go out and clear the publishing I see. yourself and uh but uh we do get asked for covers a lot and we do supply a lot of covers and we have ones that are very kind of normal sounding some sounding like the original to some degree but we also do have reimagined ones and that's an area of uh, of growth for us as well so you know always open to to hearing about that directly now for that we're we don't need a supplier so we would be for people offering reimagined covers we would be able to work directly with the artist okay i see um, well, that's I, I just want to add one little story. Just sure. um, many, many years ago, um, I, I lived in Manhattan in the village right near a very well-known club uh, called The Bottom Line. Okay. And uh, they used to have an artist series, a uh, writer series. It was called In Their Own Right, W-R-I-T-E. And the, uh, one of the people they had there was a guy named Al Cooper. Most younger people aren't going to know who Al Cooper is is uh, i'm sure he's still alive um but he was a uh, he was a founding member he was a founder of blood sweat and tears and okay. uh he did many other things and he wrote a, a song that was a dirge just like very sad slow song and gave it to his manager and this was in the 60s and uh he went to England to work and do stuff, and there was no internet in those days or cell phones, and he wasn't in touch with his manager for a long time. And uh, he was there for a number of months and came back, um, and it turns out that uh, uh, somebody had done that song in a bubblegum style, and it became <laughs> a huge hit, and uh, it was called This Diamond Ring. And it was done by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And uh, for those that don't know it, you could go on to Spotify or Apple Music and listen to it, this diamond ring. But he was telling the story of how he wrote it in a completely different style. And then when they did it, essentially, they reimagined it and became a huge hit. He made more money from that than any other thing he ever did. Yeah. It's an interesting thing how that works. Um, but it's, such an, it's also encouraging to know that there are so many different ways that for a song to be interpreted. You know, and that it can be successful in multiple ways. You know, yeah. um, I know a yeah. lot of country, country and pop songs have gone from, you know, uh, start off country and then a pop person put it out. You know, and then became an, a, another huge hit. You know, so it's been huge in in multiple genres at this point. You know, so that's a that's exciting to hear 
um, that it happens for a lot of different people in a lot of different genres, yeah. not, not just in the ma- necessarily the, the mainstream uh, world. So I did want to ask you this. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is going to be exclusive, but uh, do you, does APM, when you sign music and writers to work with you, whatever songs that get put into the library for the different, all the people you're connected with, is it always exclusive? Do you do non-exclusive? Do you do a mixture of both or how do you prefer to do those things? Uh, we, we only do exclusive. Okay. That's what I thought. And uh, we don't really believe in the non-exclusive model. I think uh, to have multiple people uh, promoting and trying to license the same track is confusing. Many of the studios and networks will not work with non-exclusive suppliers and because they don't even know whom to pay or if there's an infringement issue, whom to go after, who's going to protect. A non-exclusive supplier uh, is not allowed to um, sue for copyright infringement. So um, you have to be exclusive and, or the owner of the copyright in order to be able to do it. So there are a lot of issues around non-exclusivity. There's also a glut of product out of the market. So you know, having things non-exclusive and in five different places doesn't help that glut. It only makes it uh, it worse. Also, a lot of the non-exclusive companies change the title and uh, put it out under different names often. And uh, uh, so it's uh, I think it's problematic. And um, the audio recognition systems uh, that are used by a lot of the societies now to pay performance revenue, they're not going to know who the entitled party is. The YouTube content ID system won't know who the entitled party is. And so things go into a holding pattern, into a suspense account, and no, nobody gets paid. So I think that you know, quality artists should work with exclusive libraries. And there are many of them. As, as I think you know, I'm the chairman of the Production Music Association. And if you go to pmamusic.com, you can see a list of the libraries. All the libraries there are exclusive. Um, and I think it's the best way. You hire somebody to represent your content, essentially, or you're working with somebody to represent your content. If you, would write, if you were writing a book, you'd only give it to one publisher. If you did a movie, it's only one person distributing it. Why right. should music be any different? The, yeah. the logic and the mechanisms of marketing and building a client base for a product product are no different than any other form of uh, intellectual property. And sure. so uh, that I have a strong, as you can tell, belief mm-hmm. in the exclusive model. Okay. So when, when you sign someone to write exclusive, that, that's referring to the songs that they are writing for you, that the, the songs are exclusive to APM. But or to one or to one of the libraries we represent. Or, right. Okay. Yeah. But as far as as far as the the writer or producer, they can write for multiple libraries. But it's only, you know, if I write for you, my, the songs I I write for you are exclusive to you. But I can also write music for another library that's separate music and it's, that's exclusive to them. Right. So you don't so, you're not exclusive to the artist, but just to the songs the artist correct. gives to we you. We don't we don't represent artists. We right. represent music. Right. And so now if it it could be that one of the libraries we represent uh, wants somebody to write exclusively for them for a period of time. But if that's the case, that should be the quid pro quo should be that they're willing to commit that you will write a certain amount of material that they will take in sure. and, uh, you know, assuming they like the material and yeah. uh, cause you don't want to be exclusive to something. They say, Oh, we don't need anything for a year, you know? So, right. um, in the past, uh, libraries, including some of the ones we represent really wanted, they were developing artists in, 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 in the sense that they found somebody and they brought them into the library world and they nurtured them and they helped grow them and train them and, uh, whatever it was, or they worked to help build their career. So even though they weren't managing the artist, they spent a lot of time and effort uh, with that uh, artist, uh, that writer, song, songwriter or composer. So they didn't want somebody just to go off and write to somebody else, with somebody else. Right. So there could be, and I believe there are a few libraries, maybe some that we represent that really prefer uh, for you as a writer to work just with them, at least for some period of time. But many, many, if not most, library writers today um, keep open the potential to write with many, you know, different libraries. Yeah. So the key to the library business is writing a bunch of material. Because right. of the fact that you never know which track is going to get used, you want to have a good amount of material out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are composers who make their entire living from writing library music. Right. And, but they've got a lot of material. Right. 
they've got good relationships with a library or a few libraries, <clears throat> and uh, and that's how they build their career. So, do you? Um, I know a lot of. I know most libraries that I'm aware of uh, only pay on the back end in the royalties. Some libraries will pay some a, a fee up for like a sync fee or something up front. Like I'm talking about like the, the instrumental production music kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some will pay, pay an upfront, you know, fee to, to write and then you get royalties on the back. Most of them only do royalties on the back end. Um, can Which I means ask? They're not paying at all because those come from the performing rights societies, not from the library. Right. So how can I ask how you guys, are you allowed to talk kind of about how, that, how you sure. guys do that kind so, of stuff? So again, because APM doesn't really do its own music, it's, it's through the libraries we represent, at least 99%. Correct. If we hire somebody directly, let's say for our kinetic library or something, um, we, they, uh, or one of our other uh, small libraries that we're putting music directly and where we're working directly with the composer, the composer gets 50% of our sync revenue. That's our general deal. There's some that are a little bit less for a variety of reasons, but generally speaking, that's the model. It's the old traditional model of the library business that we follow. And then they get the writer's share of performance revenue. So, um, and because 75% of the revenue uh, here in the US anyway, uh, comes from uh, from sync rather than performance. If you are giving up the sync, you're giving up the lion's share of the revenue. So um, we pay. We want our songwriters to participate in the sync revenue, and in virtually all of our libraries. I think all of our libraries. I mean, I don't look at their exact deals with their composers, but I know that most every library of ours. D- does the same thing. I don't know what exactly what the percentage is, but uh, generally speaking, virtually all of our on, with virtually all of our music, the composers share in the sync revenue in perpetuity, in addition to getting the writer share of performance. Okay. And I, I think it's really one of the reasons why the APM library is so good. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I just want people to kind of have a, to really have an understanding of, you know, the differences in how different libraries work and, yeah. um, and the reasonings behind that. So I appreciate that. One thing I did want to ask real quick, cause I know we got to wrap up here soon. I want to get some advice from you, but, um, talking about the exclusive, non-exclusive thing, when it comes to, comes to cover songs and you're working directly with, um, is that you're doing the same model there? The, if you sign an, a cover song of somebody, that's going to be exclusive with you guys at that point? So the, the cover material until now has been uh, non-exclusive. So somebody wants to okay. also take it somewhere else. However, um, we're doing more and more on the reimagined side and we're putting right. more and more marketing effort into it. <clears throat> and the more marketing effort we put into something, the more we feel that we probably should have exclusive for some period of time. Uh, because we don't want somebody else to be able to, you know, get the benefit of the work that we're doing because we're investing time, effort, and money in it. So um, we'll probably, even though it's been non-exclusive for now, um, we'll probably change that model going forward. And uh, but again, really wanting to do justice to the material and for the for the writer. And if we can't, uh, you know, we'll we'll convert it to non-exclusive, or we'll just give up the track we only want music that we can do justice to for everybody sure. uh, how long is your how long is a contract typically when you sign or you know sign songs is it a year three years uh when you're doing exclusive stuff before are you willing to let it go or well uh, the traditional uh library model and all the libraries we represent like kpm and other ones they are they commission material from songwriters and the music goes in the library in perpetuity. Okay. It's owned by the library. And the reason for that is that the, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into marketing all of this. And also, you know, somebody could download something today um, and not use it for a year or mm-hmm. two or three. And yeah. uh, the, you just never know. So that's the library model, generally speaking, that if you're going to write for a library, it goes into the library and it stays in the library. Right. Yeah. If you're concerned about it, then, you know, I tell people, go write another track. 
<laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, okay, uh, so then as far as the, the covers, though, if you're saying that, you know, you're switching, you're going to switch that model to exclusive, but if mm-hmm. it doesn't, and nothing happens to it for a while, and you're, like, willing to let it go, like, do you have a, a time Probably a couple frame? of years. A okay. couple of years. Okay. And then also on our indie artist music uh, that we are where, uh, with our Kinetic Library, where we're commissioning, not commissioning, but we're taking in um, independent artist music directly. Um, I think we have a two-year minimum. Okay. Uh, two or three, I can't remember exactly. Uh, we just want enough time to be able to market it, and then enough time for a uh, uh, for clients to respond and to be able to use it, and you know, get what uh, what our do do is. And um, you know, we have uh, we have an old library called with uh, an old partnership. It's about 13, 14 years old with Reverb Nation, and there's a bunch of uh, independent artist material in there, and there is an op option for artists to opt out at any time and you know we do well with it so most of the artists don't opt out you know they just keep it in there and it's exclusive to us for as long as they opt in and uh um, but if they opt out we give it back you know yeah but that's a that's different than how the the, the traditional library model where something is going in uh, forever and the only reason we do it this way is that an indie song that is current today may not be current or useful two years from now. So if somebody wants it back, generally speaking, that's fine. Okay. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for all that. It's amazing. I know we need to wrap up because you got another meeting to get to, but so just as we wrap up here, um, beyond everything that we've already talked about, is there any advice that you can give uh, to people that either, either as, you know, artists, writers, producers that want to write music for, uh, libraries that that work with you that you guys work with or for people that would want to work for a library like APM or KPM <laughs> or some of those other ones sure. um, you know what's some advice you would give to people that want to do either of those types of things so my overall advice for people is to come prepared okay educate yourself if you're uh, on the writing side then know what's out there, listen to music and programming, see what is being used and how you might fit into that universe. Um, If you're pitching to a particular library, go on their website, educate yourself about the new releases, understand what they do, do as much research as you can when you're coming into it. And um, if you're on the business side, I think the same thing, understand the company you're dealing with. And uh, when you're in an interview, you know, uh, I guess, you know, firstly, understand what you might want to do. I mean, there are a variety of different roles. Sometimes you can see some of the different roles in a, in a company. Uh, you can find it on LinkedIn and other places and uh, understand how you might want to fit in and then um, uh, educate yourself. And uh, so come prepared. When I uh, was being considered for the job at APM, uh, and it was a totally out of the blue thing. Uh, uh, And uh, I wrote up a resume. I didn't have one before. I did a lot of research. And uh, um, I wrote a letter along with my resume uh, that said, these are the questions I would like answered my first day on the job. And uh, it, I probably overdid it, but it was five pages long. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sent it up with the resume and they, you know, interviewed me. And uh, one of the people interviewed me, I said, uh, was one of the most senior executives in the, in the parent company. And one of the parent companies uh, said, did you get my letter? Do you have a chance to look at it? And he said, yes, that's why you're here. Nice. So be prepared. Uh, we've had people, I've had people coming in for interviews who, Literally, they say to me in the interviews, so what do you do? <laughs> you know, like, what does your company do? Can you explain, right. you know, come in knowledgeable. Also, if you're going to be on the business side, um, think about what skills you need in order to succeed in any business. And make sure you're good at Word and Excel and, and uh, you know, some of the modern, other modern, you know, SaaS softwares that people are using um, and familiarize yourself with, with some of those. So you have... A little bit of background so you can say you're educated about those kind of things and because yeah. um, people want to they they you really i mean my first criteria is are you a nice person who will be easy to work with with no drama and will you fit culturally into the company into the company's culture and that we consider before anything else 
And so um, you need to be have those kind of personal characteristics of uh, of uh, interest and curiosity and being nice and being responsive and all of these things that are just part of kind of a common courtesy and a common part of the social contract. Right. And so those are very, very important. And then there are the uh, intellectual or business skill kind of aspects that where there are some things that are maybe uh, necessary or, or important for the uh, entire, you know, no matter who the person is in the company, you want to be curious and you have to be open to new ideas and new ways of thinking. You have to be interested in growing. <clears throat> and uh, I like it when people in my company attack a particular area that isn't their area of responsibility and try to become an expert at it. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I like it when people are innovative. I like when they go beyond the job description. Uh, and um, I like people who are customer centric and able to, to do so. And so um, all of that on the business side are things that help somebody feel, Hey, you know what? I really would like to work with this person. That's great. Well, thank you for all that amazing advice and information. I'm so, so grateful and excited for people to hear all that we've got to, to discuss today. So thank you for your time. Um, Pleasure. I appreciate it very, very much and hope you have a great rest of the day. I know you got another meeting to get to, so I'm going to let you go no do all that. Uh, but thank you. And uh, hopefully if ever I get back out to California or if you ever come to Nashville, love to get together in person and go get lunch and to say thank you. And uh, well, I would uh, love to that. Meeting so in person please someday. reach out and I'm sure we'll be in touch anyway. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. All right, guys, there you have it. I hope you had a great time listening to our conversation today. I hope you take what we've talked about today and find ways to apply it to your career as well. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. And please share it with all of your friends so that we can continue to get this message out to everyone around the world. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone, Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime. Let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.